to start with. No. I'll go and I'll try to catch someone today and then I'll see Okay. Yeah, I actually haven't told Luca. Yeah, so you definitely should. All right, so now that Jimmy's finally here. Okay, so this question, utility and beauty that we were talking about yesterday. Um, let's be a little bit more specific about it. What, I, what I'd like to, we're, we're going to have our little quiz tomorrow. The other thing I should say is, I mean, we're going to have our midterm tomorrow, but it will be quiz length. Um, the other thing that I should say is that we should also figure out tomorrow what we will do, or maybe better to say not do, for the rest of the term, since we're now halfway through. And... Yeah, proof. Is it a safe assumption, because it's what I've been making, to go by the syllabus, the material in the midterm? That seems like a bad idea. But Wait, what? Like, is it sa just, it like, seems like sure a bad idea to make a safe assumption? That's so interesting. <laughs> it's just like the syllabus changes, and I feel like I'm missing things. Does the syllabus contain like all the stuff that's necessary? I think so. Okay, good. But the inflection on your voice makes me think. Well, so we're doing, I mean, the syllabus says, like, Adam Smith, but we're doing, we're focusing on some parts of Adam Smith, like today, um, that, that aren't specified on the syllabus. So some of it is specified, some of it isn't. And so if you got it, if it, if it was distributed on latte, then... Latte plus syllabus. Yeah, okay. but... But you don't have to do Timon, for example, which is off the syllabus, right? And there's other stuff that, that you don't particularly have to do. But, yeah, more or less. If you've been more or less keeping up with the reading, you'll be fine. Yeah, Gabby. Can we expect it to be, like, essay questions or, like, short questions? Oh, you can expect it to be anything you want. I'm not going to worry about your expectations. <laughs> expect away. No, it's going to be short. It's did you did you have you been doing the reading, especially the reading that you were definitely supposed to be doing because we were discussing it. So that's really this is a way of asking that question, but getting an answer that is harder to lie on. Like if that were simply the question, if everyone were perfectly honest, then that could be the single question: Have you been doing the reading? How much of it? That'd be two questions, really. And then it would be easy to grade you. But instead, we have to go through these really elaborate shifts of asking you questions about the reading in order to um, make sure that your answers are indicative of whether you actually did the reading or not. There is something we'll probably be talking about later, which is honest signaling or costly signaling, which are uh, two names for the same thing. I'm not sure we're going to get a chance to talk about that, but I hope we will. And costly or honest signaling is, um, they're also sometimes called difficult to fake signals. So that it's difficult to fake being able to dunk a basketball <laughs> if you can't dunk a basketball. So, so, so getting the answers right, that's difficult to fake. That would be the point. Whereas asking you, did you do the reading, that's easy to fake because you could just say, yes. Why, yes, I did. So that's, that's an important distinction. Okay, what we were talking about yesterday was 
utility and its relationship to beauty. And so Adam Smith, and there, there are a couple of things in Adam Smith that seem connected to this question in ways that are maybe a little bit unexpected. So what does Smith say about utility in the pages that I gave you guys last week? Do you remember? He says that utility goes with beauty. He says, um, let me just pull that up on preview, that utility is one of the principal sources of beauty, this is at the very beginning of part four, has been observed by everybody who's considered with any attention what constitutes the nature of beauty. So, so sources of beauty are utility. Examples would be, we talked about some examples, but examples would be something like an iPhone, um, the elegance of an iPhone. It was that, that was the thing that Steve Jobs was really, really interested in, was making it as, making Apple products as beautiful as possible, where what beauty meant was not only chrome finishes and so on, but as little extraneous as possible. The difference between Windows and um, the Apple operating systems are an example of this, that everything in Apple is elegant. And the idea that beauty and elegance go together, that's something that obviously Steve Jobs um, thought and that Adam Smith is thinking. So how would that work, though, with a beautiful work of art? What utility does it have? Yeah. For example, educational utility. Educational utility. So what you but does a beautiful work of art have more utility than um, I don't know than a slime mold? Than a slime mold. Yeah. Do you guys know what slime molds are? I don't. Some people actually think they're beautiful. They're, uh, slime molds are really interesting biological entities. I thought some of you took evolutionary biology. No? All right. They're really interesting. Maybe it was the other class. They're really interesting biological entities. They're, um, sometimes they act as a single organism, and sometimes they act as um, groups, uh, as, as individual cells, and they conglomerate and disconglomerate, and they can move around and they do things. And if you look at the ground, especially in the spring, you'll sometimes see really yucky things appear on the ground. I mean, like really yucky. And they'll be there for a couple of days, and then they'll disappear. Those will often be slime molds. There is on Facebook at least one slime mold appreciation group, which a friend of mine and I both belong to. And, but I'm sure there are more. I'm sure you can find a lot of slime mold appreciation groups. And I'm not talking politics here. I'm talking about genuine slime molds. And you can tell from the name that not everyone loves them. Slime molds. And Are they just blocks of slime? Often. Because I feel like I've seen that. Yeah. I'm, you and probably I've been like, have. what is that? Yeah, it's probably a slime mold. Here, um, Jimmy, can you get up some images of slime molds? This is important. Well, the point is that they're not beautiful, but they definitely have utility for education. At least they're not beautiful according to human... Oh, my God, it's, it says pulsating. I think that's... It's probably moving very fast. That's probably... Uh, huh. All right. So... That's got utility, but not beauty. Some people will say it's beautiful. You know those, those weirdo scientists who find, uh, God, is that a beautiful cockroach? 
that kind of thing. But most people don't find them beautiful. So what is so you it wouldn't quite be that a work of art has utility for education, I don't think. And nor that if it does have utility for education, that that's what you're looking at if you find a work of art beautiful or what makes a song beautiful. There are lots of things you could ask. Art. What about like the satisfaction that it gives the owner looking at it like? Okay, so so what? But what's the nature of that satisfaction? So, if you own a slime mold, you're probably going, or if you own, like, you know, fungus, you may feel less satisfied than if you own even just a cheapo, buy it outside of the <coughs> SCC poster of, uh, of the Mona Lisa. So, that is easy to buy, costs you $10. Um, and um, someone else goes and buys um, a slime mold from the expensive biological supply store and the, well maybe the satisfaction is how much you pay for it that, that, that obviously has a lot to do with people's satisfaction could it be about like, how others value that? or how you value that? well it could be about how others value it for sure but there's still the question what is it that makes it beautiful and is it is it really its utility that makes something beautiful? And so one of the examples that, that Smith gives is he asks whether tweezers are beautiful. Are tweezers beautiful the way a house on top of a hill is beautiful, the way a really elegant house on top of a hill is beautiful? Um, does something that enables you to pluck your eyebrows, um, is that as beautiful as, I don't know, as an iPhone? They both have utility. Right? Um, but the question still is, where's the beauty in that? Is that a question you guys have never asked yourself, what makes something beautiful? There are lots, it's a puzzle if you, if you do ask yourself what makes something beautiful. Um, it could be, and there, there can be confusions between what makes a person beautiful, that is, if you find someone strikingly good looking, is that the same, are you having the same reaction that you would be having, let's say, to a beautiful theorem in mathematics? And is that the same reaction that you would be having to a beautiful Zen garden? Are those similar or different from each other? Yeah, I think sexual attraction is different, but you can definitely have the disinterested contemplation of someone's physical beauty, yeah. which would be similar to appreciating the beauty of the theorem. And not, you know, sort of, I, like, so I, I think, you know, so, you know, yes and no, I mean, of course, sexual attraction is very different. To, but, you know, I, I, it doesn't exclude the possibility of having aesthetic contemplation. So is so let's say you have aesthetic contemplation of someone's beauty without finding without having any attraction towards them. Has everyone had that experience? Um, yeah, often it will be an appreciation of someone um, who is not the object of your of what you regard as your sexual orientation. So if you're not bisexual, you might find someone um, dis, you might have a, have a sense of their beauty without being sexually attracted to them if your orientation is not to that gender or to that sex, right? Has everyone had that experience? 
Um, so is that the same as finding um, a really beautiful Amazon blue front parrot beautiful, assuming that you're not sexually attracted to the Amazon blue front parrot? What? So is finding a person beautiful, even though you're not sexually attracted to them, is that the same thing as finding a parrot beautiful? Why is that yucky? I'm interested it's in finding yuck, yucky. Just, I don't want to say what I'm thinking because it's gross. <laughs> but is it beautiful as well as no, gross? No, but like, is something beautiful because it's like, Like yeah. The ideal form, like in the platonic sense, right? Or something. Yeah. But there's no objective form of beauty that changes, and there's no like perfect math, and there's no perfect. Even with art, like it's hard to label something as like perfect art. There's just no objective like reference for it. Yeah. So it's a puzzle. Then what beauty yeah. is, right? So now I'm confused. Okay, that's a step. When I was very young, I was very, I'm still very disgusted by cockroaches, but we had a family friend who could actually pick them up. And then, like, it was really, and then he just, and they are beautiful. So that's, that was like, and he just made me look at it, and it's, it's all intricately designed, like, you know, sort of by evolution, and it's like all the parts. It's shiny, which initially would make me feel, Ugh. but then when you look at it, it's actually, yeah, it's, it's actually quite nice. And, then, and yet you're still disgusted. Yes, that's a difference. <laughs> um, spiders? Anyone hate spiders in this class? Yes. I still let them outside. Sorry? I still let them outside. You still let them outside instead so of going? Yeah. But they're, some people think they're beautiful too. All right. So part of, part of the thing here is that, that Smith is making this claim that utility and beauty go together. And not that anything useful is necessarily beautiful but that anything beautiful will look like it has utility. And um, you're right to, because we've been talking about utility in this class as um, a very wide concept, that is that even money has utility because exchange value is the use of money. The appearance of utility <coughs> is what Smith is calling beauty, that it's not just the utility because um, a, a big pen will write as well as a Mont Blanc pen. But there's something about a Mont Blanc pen, in fact, it might write even better than a Mont Blanc pen, but there's something about this Mont Blanc pen that looks like it has, um, like it's better designed than a big pen. Um, or a digital watch will keep time better than an analog watch. And yet, people think of analog watches on the whole as more beautiful. Do you guys feel that way? I mean, I know you don't have watches at all anymore, but do you have a watch? Is that a watch? Yeah. Yeah, and it's analog. So why'd you pick an analog watch? Um, it looks better, actually, than a uh, digital watch. There we go. Yeah, so what makes it look better? I'm not too sure. It's just something uh, innate. It's I can't give a reason, just to me, it looks better. Yeah, well, do other people agree that it looks better? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> there you go. Do you, do, you have a, do you have a sense of why it looks better? Um, no, I think it just looks more, I guess, 
All right. Um, do you know if you see a watch ad on in a magazine or online? Do you know what time watches always say in their ads? It's interesting. Now you'll notice if you look. Whenever you see, yeah, you, you can run Google Images, right? Um, I, but I, I, I guess Google Watch Ad. They always say 10 after 10. Um, 10 out of 10? Sorry? 10 out of 10, like subconsciously? No, nice. Um, no, it's the, it's the perfect, it's the best oh. balance you can get of the hands of the watch is for them oh, to be really? like this, to be pointing... Um, just it's actually more like um, nine twenty after ten. If if it were if you were looking really really closely, do you have one? And is it ten after ten? Yep. Here, can you show it? So like you don't want if you, if if you're advertising a watch, you don't want it to say yeah. You want it to say ah. So it's kind of pointing up. Yeah. So there's, yeah, okay, right. So there's something, oh, if only we'd seen this 10 minutes ago, it would have been perfect. But yeah, there's something balanced about that. So we can, we can people talk about balance and harmony as elements of the beautiful. And the thing about a digital watch is how do you get a digital watch to be balanced and harmonious since they're just going to be random digits on it? Yeah. I feel like you can make the argument that I'm trying to think of another example besides watches, but like that you, the beauty is kind of like the lack of utility in terms of like if an analog clock keeps better time or a digital clock keeps better time, but it looks kind of ugly. But like it's kind of if you have like an analog watch, it's kind of like oh I don't need to like tell time that well. I just want it to look nice. I mean, try to think of another example. No, but I think that I think that's a good example that analog watches don't keep time as well as, as um, digital watches. Um, they don't keep time at least as precisely as digital watches. Maybe as well, but not as precisely. But I think there are like other things, like like high heels, which we are considered like beautiful, but are not like functional really. I mm -hmm. like sneaker. Right. Consider them more beautiful. You know, have less utility. Yeah. So. Sneakers definitely have more utility than high heel shoes, and yet high heel shoes feel, um, to some people, they look more beautiful. Um, there are, high heel shoes are probably a strange example because of, the, of their relation to sexuality and to um, the way they pose the body of the person who's wearing high heel shoes. And then they're, they're also the um, associations that come with them. Um, but, yeah, that's a good example. But again, the thing about a sneaker is, even though it is more useful, it doesn't look more useful than a high heel shoe. If you didn't know what these things were, and you saw a sneaker, and you saw a high heel shoe, high -heel shoe and you had no, no experience of shoes you would probably find the high heel shoe more beautiful. Um, unless, even if the sneaker were brand new, you'd probably find the high heel shoe more beautiful. All that, you know, if you're, if you're looking at a sneaker and you, know, you have all the laces flopping all around and then there's this high heel shoe. Um, so we tend to look at, I mean, this is, in a way, all Smith is doing is asking us to notice what, what we do notice anyhow. 
which is that we tend to look at symmetry and harmony and a sense of really elegant design as um, the source of beauty, or at least as beautiful things. And digital watches don't give you that. Sneakers probably don't give you that. High-heeled shoes may. As far as the lack of utility goes, what I think Smith would say, and here you can maybe then see how this is connected to what Mandeville was saying, is that the fact that a digital watch is more useful than an analog watch is compensated for, and maybe even overcompensated for. I think you see this, well, I mean, you guys, maybe you're too young to know the history of this, but you know how when you get texts or emails or look at Facebook and they're telling you, you know, when, when the last email was sent or... So it used to be that it would actually tell you to the second, like, um, like last update, um, three days, four hours, six minutes, and 23 seconds ago. Um, and now they just say six days ago. Um, or emails um, last night, rather, or yesterday, rather than 11.23 p.m. on March 12th. Um, so that was, that, you guys are all used to that, right? That, that, um, that you were getting vague time descriptors in things that happened in the past. Um, this com when, when, did this, when was this comment put on Facebook? Um, three months ago, not um, exactly 93 days ago. So what's happening is that kind of vaguing of specificity has been felt by all the software providers, or at least by most of them, as more pleasant for um, consumers than getting more precision. I think the same is true of Apple Watches. Anyone have an Apple Watch? Anyone know anyone? You have one? So how do you look at it when you look at the time? What do you have it set for? What do you, oh. Do you um, have hands or, or digits? No, I have digital because it's easier. It's easier. Do you like, does it look as good? No, I mean like it is kind of ugly. It's just like plain white letters, but also I can just read it. I don't have to be like, okay, that's three. Yeah, no, so that's exactly right. Digital is far more useful, but analog is more beautiful. So that's what Andrea is saying is she's noticing that. Um, but what Smith is saying is digital is more useful, but analog looks like the utility, the, like it's better designed. So that in a sense, it's that there's this really elegant way of telling time, which is that you're watching things that are not moving, but that nevertheless are in some harmony with where the sun is or how much light there is in the world or something like that. You look at a digital um, watch and there's nothing about the numbers that, t that are suggesting motion through the sky of the sun or of heavenly bodies or of the earth turning and so on, so that the design of an analog watch or clock is a design which harmonizes with what time really is, or at least what what specification of time really is, what time of day it is. Whereas digital is just number after number after number. It's like an analog watch knows what it means for time to pass. Whereas a digital watch is just pulsing information 
disconnected, each bit of, dis of information disconnected from all the other bits of information. Prove. Couldn't you argue that a digital watch is more complicated from a technical sense? Yeah. Because... Is that good or bad? It's just that, like, it looks more streamlined that we perceive, like, an analog clock to be more complicated. Like, because you can see it moving... And okay, but see, I love the fact that you use the word streamlined there. That it looks more streamlined. Like, it doesn't... So, wait, do people know what streamlining is? What is it, literally? No, that's not literally what it is. Like planes kind of thing? Yeah, planes and cars and trains. I think it started with trains. Um, aerodynamics? It's aerodynamics. Yeah, so if you streamline something, it's got better aerodynamics and will go. The, there'll be less air resistance as it goes through the air. So if you say that a digital watch looks more streamlined, what you're using is an idea of utility to describe its beauty. And that's exactly what Smith is saying. But I'm not saying that, like... You're using it metaphorically, I know. I mean, yeah, but the thing that makes us think that analog... Like, I could... My grandfather had, like, a house full of, like, 90s digital clocks and, a, like, this, like, big grandfather clock. And uh -huh. I used to sit and watch the grandfather clock. Nobody watches a digital clock, even yeah. though the digital clock is technically more complex. Yeah. But you can, like... It's like the... Like the grandfather clock or the analog clock, like signals the fact that it's this complex, right? Like moving thing, as opposed to a digital clock, which is just like here is the time. Yeah, but it's also it may be complex and moving, but there's something about the complexity that's not arbitrary. That is, so does your grand your grandfather had a grandfather clock? <laughs> I love that. Um, so, could, was it one of those clocks where you could see the little gears yeah. behind the face or in little holes in the face? And, and it had like a thing. Yeah, yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. Um, so I think what's happening there, or do you want to speak to that? Well, kind of. I had, I have, um, in high school, I had some friends who were like into watches, and I wasn't, but when they would be comparing watches, what they would do is take it off and flip it over and show each other like the back where you can see the inner workings. Right. Yeah. And so I think what's happening is that even when you have complicated inner workings, you can see how they're connected to each other. That is that it's not like on the one hand you have a large gear which is you know basically circular, um, but then you also have like you know weirdo looking rhomboids and I mean you wouldn't want to if you opened a watch you wouldn't want to find. Um, rhombuses and scaling triangles within it. That's what you're kind of, what you're imagining is what you'll see is a lot of gearing of different circles. And the way a watch works is that the um, hour hand, there's one gear, this is how an analog watch works, is there's one gear which is moving the hour hand around and it's very big and it's moving very slowly. And it's geared to another gear which is essentially, I mean, it, it, the, the, this can be mediated through several other gears, but to another gear which has one sixtieth of the circumference of the hour <coughs> hand. No, one twenty-fourth of the circumference of the hour hand, and that's the minute hand, which is itself geared to another gear which has one sixtieth of the circumference of the minute hand, which is the second hand. So what you're seeing is you're seeing motion that you can't see, but you have a very large gear which is moving very, very slowly, but moving fast enough 
to transfer its motion to a smaller gear, which is then still moving slowly, so imperceptibly slowly, but faster than the hour hand, and that the motion of that small gear is actually shooting the second hand around the clock. And it's a single motion, which is being distributed over three different circular pieces. And that's what's elegant about it. It's, co it's complex, not that complex, but complex enough. It's complexity that you can see, but it's also what the poet William Butler Yeats will later call, oh no, I'm sorry, what Coleridge calls multiety in unity. That is, it's multiple, but those multiples are all connected together. Yeah. And there's also a circuit board aesthetic too. <coughs> I think the problem, if you could actually perceive the, the workings of the circuit board, I, I think that, you know, in digital watches, they, will, they would break if you made uh, the, you know, the circuit board that accessible. And if, yeah. I think it's if you, if you build circuit boards yourself, like you grow to appreciate oh, yeah, the absolutely. system and their beauty. Yeah. It's just that now they're just too small, everything that's in here. So it's harder to, to see what's beautiful about it. And I just love the way that the way he talks about the love of system. You appreciate the fact that it, it could be useful, but it's, it's a very uh, intellect. You, it's, it's, it's the love of the connectedness <coughs> that it's an intellectual response, and it's not. Yeah, no, no. I think that's 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 exactly right. And there are, you know, if you go into engineering, um, are you going into engineering? Yeah. So, do you find engineering beautiful? In its own way, yes. Yeah. Okay. Like the complex logic. Yeah. Um, so, if you go into engineering, um, then what happens is you learn to find things beautiful that people who don't understand what they're looking at don't find beautiful. It's like whoa, you attached a capacitor to that transistor, and that's amazing. Um, and that's something that eventually you learn to find beautiful, but you have to see through these things that um, are not beautiful on their surface. But once you see what they do, then they start looking beautiful. So there is a learned way. This, is, this all seems to be supporting a whole lot of what Smith says, that when you learn the utility of parts, and then you can see how those parts harmonize with each other to produce a larger utility, something will, a cockroach will start looking beautiful to you. Um, if you really learn that, if you really study the cockroach, then the cockroach will start looking beautiful to you. Um, but until then, it won't. But there is, according to Smith, and again, this is um, um, a debatable claim, but there is, according to Smith, an idea of, um, a naive idea of beauty. That is something that we find beautiful because we can see straight off, simply in virtue of being human beings, that these things are, that we can see the utility of something, and we can see its elegance. We can see the elegance of that utility. And it tends to be the case that for people, um, symmetry is important to judgments of beauty, whether looking at whether a person is beautiful or a flower is beautiful or an iPhone is beautiful and, uh, or a watch is beautiful. That's why the watches say 10 after 10. Um, if you, I don't think there is a time that digital watch ads have on them. I don't think there's canonical time. And the reason is it's hard to imagine what that canonical time would be. Maybe it's noon. Maybe they say 12 colon zero zero. Um, but that, 
you know, I, I, they, they, they don't emphasize the time. It's interesting that if you have a digital watch ad, the fact that it's saying, telling the time is like the least of it. Whereas with an analog watch ad, it's like 10 after 10. It's, it's a gorgeous thing. Um, so there's, so that's Smith's claim. But then he's interested in another fact, which is it doesn't seem that beauty seems to trump utility in a lot of um, situations. That is that the work that people put into producing something that looks useful requires more than the payback of that utility. So he gives several examples of that. But if you think of utility in a completely utilitarian fashion, do people know what utilitarianism, by the way, what the philosophy called utilitarianism is? Is that a familiar term, kind of? Like economically? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry? The most good for the most people. Yeah. Um, that system is, bed, is best, which provides uh, the greatest good for the greatest number of people. Um, that is actually a, a two-variable um, equation um, without a second equation to, to, for you to be able to figure out what those variables are. Um, but the basic idea is you want to maximize utility where utility is what people think it is. That is, um, utility is sometimes called a revealed preference. So if someone prefers the experience of, uh, to quote, um, Bentham is said to have said this, but it wasn't actually Bentham, but that pushing a pin, um, just tacking something up with a pin for you is as much a pleasure as listening to a Beethoven sonata is for me, then they're equally valuable. Um, because it's um, useful to me to be able to push a pin into a bulletin board and hang up a poster and I, or hang up a memo, and um, it's just a pleasure, you know, that pleasure when the thumbtack breaks the surface and first you're pushing, and then boom, it goes in, and that's a joy. And for you, the joy might be hearing this amazing note in... Um, in um, um, Opus 131 by Beethoven um, but they're equal because we're human beings and we're both taking pleasure so the idea of utilitarianism is that you want everyone to get as much as is um, uh, possible um, for things that they want as long as it's not um, reducing more than is a fair distribution other people getting as much as possible of what they want. And so that idea then is that utility is the measure of happiness, um, the possibility, um, access to utility is access to happiness. And the more access to utility you have, the better. So that idea would be that everyone wants to maximize utility. That, and that would seem like um, almost a tautology. What does the word tautology mean? Anyone know? Important word. You should use it in all your writing from now on. Um, a tautology is when you've said nothing, but it sounds like you've said something. 
Um, so the famous example of a tautology in, um, I think it's William James gives it, is someone says to a doctor, why do sleeping pills work? And the doctor says, it is because of the agent that they're made, it is because of a property of the agent that they're made of, which is its dormitive quality. So sleeping pills work because they have a dormitive quality. So what's a dormitive quality mean, do you think? Makes you sleep. They make you fall asleep. Um, so the reason sleeping pills work is they contain something within them that make you fall asleep. Um, oh, now I get it. In, in Cleopatra, when um, the drunken Lepidus is asking Antony, what manner of fish is your crocodile, he asks. And, and he says, well, it is of its own shape and of its own size and of its own color, too. And Lepidus says, whoa. And the tears of it are wet, he ends up saying. And the tears of it are wet. So basically, you said nothing. A tautology is when you say nothing. Um, it's when you define something by the fact that it is itself. Uh, famous tautology in philosophy is, uh, this is a tautology of ontology, that is, of the um, existence of things that exist, which is all, already a tautology, is everything is what it is and not some other thing. So is that helpful to you? Everything is what it is and not some other thing. So sometimes it is. When people say to you, it is what it is, what they're saying is you can't escape tautology, that something is what it is. That's pure and simply the case. The great 20th century philosopher um, W.V. Quine wrote an essay um, called On What There Is, a uh, great essay. Um, just imagine an essay in 20 pages you're going to find out what there is and um, so the essay is called On What There Is and um, he ends up saying that kind of quoting Hamlet that to be is to be the va value of a variable in quantification but that may be less useful um, but on what there is, he says, well, this, is, this essay is 20 pages long, but in fact, it could only be um, posed as a three-word question and a one-word answer. So the question would be, what is there? And that's a really easy way to pose the question of the being of the universe. You just say, so, what is there? And he says, and the answer is even easier. The answer is everything. So what is there? Everything. Okay, now you know. Um, except what do you know from that? Nothing, because it's a tautology. And so it is almost a tautology. Some people think it's a total tautology to say that um, the thing that people want to do is maximize utility, because that's just saying that what people want is what they want. If you define utility in a way that is general enough to capture everything about utility, that people want what they want. And so the fact that someone wants something means that they regard it as having utility, again, in the very broad sense that you were starting us off with. Um, that if people want something, it's because it has utility. How do we know it has utility? Because someone wants it. 
Um, what is it useful for? For that person. So um, why do people like hot food that um, makes them cry and, um, and um, uh, that they regret eating after they eat it? Because they want to eat some hot food. So the utility is it's spicy food. And um, for people who like that kind of thing, do you guys know that Lincoln's, Abraham Lincoln, um, wrote a book review before he was president of a book which, which began with the great immortal line. I forget what book it is, but it really doesn't matter. Um, for those who like this sort of thing, this is the sort of thing that they will like. So um, you can say that about anything, right? For those who like cockroaches, this is the sort of thing that they will like. But in this case, it's for those who like this sort of thing, this is the sort of thing that they will like. That's a tautology to say that if you like X, then this, if you like this kind of X, then this kind of X is something that you will like. And if you don't, then it won't be. Um, so utility risks tautology. That's a good, that's a good line. Utility risks tautology. Because whatever anyone wants, it's what they want. Um, and to say that um, they want it because it has utility means that they want it because it will satisfy or seem to satisfy or um, promise to satisfy the want that they want. If I want this, it's because I think it will give me a satisfaction. So what Smith, so that on the one hand gives you a sense that utility is we like beauty. It's almost a definition of beauty that we like it. People don't say things like, I really don't want to look at that flower because it's pretty, and I just don't like looking at things that are pretty. The very fact that they're calling it pretty is an evaluative term. It means that they do like it. If your friend thinks cockroaches look good, um, they're evaluating, they're saying what they think about it. They're describing their own experience of the cockroach rather than um, making um, a claim to which they are indifferent. That would be Smith's argument. It's not, well, that cockroach is gorgeous, but I'm completely uninterested. If you find a cockroach gorgeous, you're interested in it. Um, you may say I'm uninterested because I am interested in something else right now. Um, because my life is blighted and even cockroaches no longer interest me, but that would be then you wouldn't be saying it's gorgeous. Um, Hamlet says something similar to that when he says in his "What a Piece of Work Is a Man," where he talks about how beautiful um, the construction of the human being is, but then he says, "But what is it to me? Simply the quintessence of dust." Um, but when he says that, he's either contradicting himself, well, he is contradicting himself, but he's melodramatizing his own depression when, in, in that speech. Um, so utility is kind of a tautology, but then Smith says, nevertheless, it seems clear, if you think about utility, that there is this weird situation where people will waste more energy saving energy, which could be a description of utility. That is, utility is what saves energy. Um, is that a tautology? Almost. 
because you have to hunt for something until you get it, and then you can stop hunting for it. So it's not quite a tautology to say that utility saves energy, but it's on the way to a tautology. So utility saves energy. And what Smith is interested in is what many of us um, resented in our parents when we were very young, is the amount of energy we have to put into saving energy. Um, Jordan Peterson says, make your bed every day. Um, how many of you make your beds every day? Like half? Yeah. To me, it seems ridiculous to make your bed every day because you're just going to get back in your bed and first you put the energy into making it and then you have to actually pull the sheets back and get back into your bed. And that was time wasted. Yeah. But if I like the appearance of it, yeah, but why do you like the appearance of it? That's the question. It seems like utility to me, but it's so... Well, it is utility to you, clearly. Mm -hmm. um, but it also seems like utility to you. Yeah, that's that's neat that you put it that way. Andrea? I agree in terms of... I don't really think it... In terms of it's more, it has more utility, because if it's unmade, I'm more likely to get back in it before I'm supposed to. Wait, so that's why you make your bed? Yeah. To keep yourself out of it? Yes. <laughs> Just put cockroaches in it. That'll keep you out. Maybe too well. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so really you think that's why you make your bed? Because that shows that you're really up. Yeah. But that then becomes a little bit symbolic. In other words, it's not that hard to get back into bed even after you've made it. But it's maybe it's like this is like a sunk cost. It's you, you went into, you, you expended the energy into making your bed. So why would you mess it up again? A lot of people feel that way after they brush their teeth. Um, that is, you brush your teeth, and it's that much harder to now have a piece of candy once you brush your teeth. It's disgusting. Well, because of the taste? Yeah, yeah it's going to taste like... Okay, so yeah. let's say you brush your teeth with some bubblegum kind, kind of toothpaste that you've outgrown so that, in fact, it wouldn't give the candy a bad taste. Water-flavored Like what? water flavor? Okay, water-flavored, yeah. Because then... Yeah. But you have to brush your teeth again anyways before you go to bed. Yeah. But it, I think there might be a little bit of a sunk cost thing that's going on there, which is interesting. Um, but if you just think, but still, a made bed um, looks good, even though, and it therefore, um, I think it looks like it has more utility than it naturally has. And um, that would be Smith's point. Or he describes the guy um, who's really PO'd that, all the, that the chairs haven't been moved back to the sides of the room, that the room is left a mess. And I don't know how many of you have been in my office, but you can see that that's not my view of, um, of messes. I think messes are fine. Um, but the room is left a mess. And um, the guy will put more energy into cleaning up his room then a clean room can possibly save him in, um, in its cleanliness. So he moves the chairs so that they're nicely distributed all around the room, and you go into the room and the chairs are just where they should be. But so what? What does that save him? And the answer is not nearly as much work as he's put into cleaning up the room. So you clean up your room in order to be able to work. Just do the work, and it'll be less work than if you clean up your room first. 
So somehow, and this is what Smith is interested in, the appearance of utility will sometimes trump utility itself. And he gives example after example after example of that. How does, I know that it's a 1010, um, how does that relate to what Mandeville is saying about taking the, um, the smallest um, uh, slice of pizza? How are those things similar? As soon as you give a good answer, you can go. So this would be, there'd be a lot of utility to a good answer right now. Well, it seems kind of backwards, because it's like the thing that appears to have the least utility has the most utility. Because a smaller pizza offers less utility. Yeah. Or appears to, but it seems as though... But it actually has more utility because it's like social. All right, so Mandeville is saying it has more utility because of its social value. Smith is saying no, that somehow beauty trumps utility, or that social value does not have as much utility as the thing that you're giving up for social value, and yet we still do it. That somehow there's something orthogonal about social relations, that if you don't treat utility as entirely tautological, which is people do it, so it obviously has more utility, it seems to be the case that, that doing the work to make something look a little bit better, even though you end up doing more work than if you just left it alone, or taking the smallest slice of pizza, even though you could get more pizza by taking the larger slice, people are motivated to do that by something that you can't quite explain as utility. And that, for Smith, is fascinating and will finally lead to Kant, whom, of course, you will read for the quiz um, for tomorrow, and Kant's definition of beauty, which, of course, you'll know for the quiz for tomorrow. And I will see you then. Yeah. But I think entropy is exactly the, um, I mean, the, the second law of thermodynamics is exactly what's going on here. Um, is it the second that entropy increases? I guess yes. it's, yeah. Um, which is that anything you do to decrease entropy ultimately increases it. Um, but then, but I think, to say, for instance, like like the petrol in the ground is low entropy because it's been, you know, sort of packed. But, but it's, it's in a sense, it feels like it's meaningless, low entropy. Yeah. And, and uh, meaning is itself a kind of structure. Anyways, it's just a, yeah. like that, that it has a, a and it, it's somehow, it's a middle entropy thing as opposed to being a low entropy yeah. thing. And that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And it's something we usually unsatisfied with the idea. Like I don't then I don't want to live in a low entropy universe if that's what it's going to be like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Are we gonna have a full class time or is No, it's gonna be ten or fifteen minutes. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, see you tomorrow.